And good afternoon. Thank you once again for joining me. Julian Campbell here. We've got another interesting show lined up for you this week and, in fact, the last one for the year. A bit later in the program, we'll have a look at a couple of our Harvard Business Review tips for our business that will help to grow our business. Also talking with Christina Sikiotis, we're talking about a delivery drone, which sounds very interesting. But right now, we're going to have a chat with Paul Boland from East Coast Law about the ins and outs of retirement villages. Good afternoon, Paul. Good afternoon, Julian. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you once again for joining us. So, um, uh, I believe an act came into place in about 1999 with regards to retirement villages. Is that how the control now exists in there, in that sort of industry? Yes, it is, Julian. Up until 1999, the retirement village industry was uh, controlled by a code of practice, and village developers in the time used to build their villages and comply with what was regulated uh, rules by the Retirement Village Association. But as a result of a dispute with uh, a village owner in 1999, the Department of Fair Trading stepped in as the dispute became very public and uh, the Minister at the time said, I'm going to introduce legislation which brought about the Retirement Villages Act and the Retirement Villages Regulations. And that is um, how Living in the village industry is controlled these days and protects the residents and the owner-operators. So even with an, with an act in place, obviously there are retirement villages and retirement villages. How would you go about picking the best one? Um, it's a good question, Julian. Um, really, looking at retirement village living, one has to make your decision based on it being a lifestyle choice for the future as opposed to an investment choice. And retirement living's not for everyone. Prospective residents, if you're considering moving into a village, you should undertake your own research, visit different uh, villages, speak with village managers and residents, and obviously seek professional financial and legal advice on the proposed contract. Not all villages are the same. And it's only through that research, and in particular in our experience, talking with the residents and the village managers will give you a a very clear indication if that village is for you. Is it something that's creeped onto uh, social media? No, not really. Um, Certainly not in 2014, but I guess there's more and more... (laughs) baby boomers enter the marketplace, uh, the commentary on villages will become more prevalent. Yeah. What, what, what types of retirement living are there? The original model, Julian, was uh, a, a leasehold model, uh, which is a resident-funded model, which has been around for about 40-odd years. And that still is the model that is used by most village developers today, where residents pay ingoing contributions and have departure fees assessed when they leave. There are loan licensed villages which are more or less operated by charities and churches. They've been around for a very long time and there are more and more coming into the marketplace today. Manufactured home estates where people will buy a manufactured home, move it into an estate and just pay some rental for the land about $150 a week. And uh, they're becoming quite prevalent. One, because they're a cheaper model and uh, you're not paying huge ingoing contributions. Yeah. 
Is that uh, that particular model? Is that covered by the Act as well? Yes. Yeah. Anybody doing retirement village development doesn't matter what type. If it's uh, church, charity, resident-funded villages, mobile home estates, and not home mobile home estates in the form of caravan parks. But there's one particular company at the moment, listed company on the stock exchange, actively buying those styles of parks and converting them into modern villages. Mm. So, so I presume that uh, those acts uh, are there mainly for the, uh, the residents. Is a retirement village a secure living choice? Yes, it is. Um, it's different, but the protections that you still have as an owner of a leasehold unit, for example, are covered by the Real Property Act where your lease is registered. When you buy your own home, you register your title. Um, the protections are the same. The operation of the Act, the Villages Act, shows how people are to run a village, both residents and operators. If you move into have security, which is there to protect you. Now, you mentioned ongoing contribution and uh, recurrent charges and departure fees and so forth for, for one of the modules there. Uh, are they set or are they uh, up to the uh, retirement village to set themselves? Depends on the style of village, Julian. Um, some people in Sydney can pay a million dollars going into uh, villages, be it high-rise or some in the eastern mm. suburbs. Um, in Newcastle, you can be going into villages paying around... 320,000, 500,000. The ongoing, ingoing contribution is based on the product that you're buying. Yeah. So if it's high quality, it'll have a high price. Yeah. And then the model calculates that while you're living there, there is amount deducted per annum, not physically deducted, but it's deducted when you leave the village. Okay. Recurrent charges, though, they're a bit like your strata levies. If you're living in a home unit, if you're living in your own house, you pay your rates, you pay your water, you pay your insurance. Recurrent charges are the same sort of charges, mm. but the village is paying them. So you pay a monthly fee. Mm. They can vary around mid-300s for villages in Newcastle. And they cover your gardens, your maintenance, roads, lighting, insurance, all the things that you would have paid yourself. Mm-hmm. And departure fees are... Uh well, most people would depart after they've after they've passed this earth, would they? <laughs> yes, <laughs> after they've passed on. Yes, and I guess that's why, as, as an industry, it's a lifestyle choice, not an investment. Yes. Some in the early days, a lot of families used to step in and see this as a depleting the future inheritance. But mm. if uh, being in a village over a period of ten years and you you depart the village you wouldn't be losing money because capital gain steps in and all of the villages will cap their departure fee. Some will have no more than 30% stopping after 10 years so that you're not having all of your money depleted. It can be complicated, but it depends on how the developers have created their documents. Just finishing on a light note, we talked about security in a uh, village but you had a couple of little anecdotal stories there. Yeah, we were, we were talking about, you know, how do you pick the best village and looking at some of the industry news this year, 
there was a village up on the Gold Coast where um, some female residents received a show cause notice after having male friends visit for the, the home at night. Someone was operating an alcohol still in another village. Uh, a 62-year-old man was evicted for operating a meth lab. So <laughs> that comes down to checking which is the best village for you, I guess. <laughs> it's not, so it's just, not just the young ones these days. Well, thanks very much for your time, Paul. We'll have a chat with you again in the new year and have a great Christmas. Look forward to it, Julian. Happy, happy Christmas and thanks for your time. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Paul Bolan there with a couple of ideas of ins and outs of retirement villages. You're listening to Business, the Law and You on 2NURFM 103.7 and it's uh, just coming up to 24 minutes past one. Time to pop over and have a chat with Christina Sikiatis. Good afternoon, Christina. Good afternoon, Julian. How are you today? I'm very well. You're enjoying yourself in a restaurant. I am. I'm just out for a little Christmas lunch. So I believe we're going to talk about Santa delivering with drones this year. Oh, an amazing thing that I read this week, or I find it quite amazing anyway to think that we're moving this quickly. Um, there's a drone, and it's called Bisbee Sky, um, that can deliver packages up to 500 grams. And it's, it's controlled completely by your smartphone app. So you, um, you can book the drone, you enter the pickup point and you enter the drop-off details. Once you've accepted the quote, um, along comes the drone, uh, off goes, you, you upload the, the package into the under, under belly of the drone, off goes the drone and you can actually watch the delivery on your smartphone in real time because there's also a camera attached. So you can see the surprise of the person on the, on the other end and I would imagine just having something delivered by drone would be a bit of a novelty to start with. Um, I'm not sure how they're going to cope with the traffic in the sky with all <laughs> these drones going backwards and forwards. Um, but I, I just, you know, it's amazing where we're going. But it means we can only have Christmas presents weighing up to 500 kilos. Yeah, wouldn't that be good as well? <laughs> 500 kilos, it'll be, <laughs> that'll be a very big drone, I 500 think. 500 grams. Yeah, 500 grams. So this is, this is where it's starting. Who knows where it's going to finish. Well, that's true, um, isn't There it? was a, another great little collaboration that I was um, reading about this week, uh, and it, uh, it's... You know, we've often talked about two big brands collaborating, so like the the Target and Jenny Key and um, Peter Morrissey and you know the, and the fashion brands and everything. Um, and this one is actually a collaboration between Molskyn and Adobe. So there's a smart notebook, or they've developed this smart notebook, and it lets you convert a hand drawn sketch into an editable Victor file. So I'm wondering the possibilities that that actually opens up for, for um, professions like natural history illustrators. And what happens is you draw on the notebook with a with a sketch pen, um, then you open up the app, you take a photo of the sketch, you import it into the into the smart appliance, whatever it is that you're using, whether it's a tablet or a you know laptop, whatever it is. Um, you print, then you can you can touch it up, you can you know edit it while it's in the in in that format in the in the Victor file. Uh, then you print it, use it, forward it, do whatever you want with it. So it kind of opens up a whole new area for um, for artists yeah. uh, in in whatever domain that they that they're doing. So I, th I thought that was quite incredible. Fantastic, yeah. And you've got some interesting comments about small business at Christmas. Oh yes, I read this unfortunate article. Well, the article is really good, but the unfortunate fact that one in four small business owners um, will actually work on their business on Christmas Day. Um, and, you, you know, it, it's th that whole thing about just take some time out, 
re- regenerate, reboot the battery. Um, and then I've read this other article about checking yourself into digital... I've done a lot of reading this week. Um, check yourself into digital rehab at least on Christmas Day. Uh, and the whole article was about, you know, when you t- let's talk to people face-to-face and not through text. So let's touch people's lives, not through Facebook with inspirational messages, but through physical touch, looking into people's eyes, having those conversations, you know, activating all those hormones in our bodies that happen when you, when you physically touch somebody. Let's be present. Let's have a, a remarkable face-to-face, wonderful, conversation-filled Christmas Day at least. Book yourself into digital rehab. Turn everything off. That's a good idea, isn't it? But I'm afraid so. people will still be texting. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure they will be. I mean, this, uh, year, this year I received two two uh, Christmas cards in the mail and about 40 through email. Oh, wow. So. I, you know what, Julian, I actually think I've gone the other way this year. I think I've received more in the mail oh, okay. um, than over the last few years and, and a few less through email. So, yeah, I thought that was a really nice, you know, that handwritten thing, yeah. the excitement of, of that post delivery that doesn't just have a window on it, yeah. a, a glass window that, you know, is a... Is a bill that hasn't come by email. <laughs> well, thanks very much for your time over the year, Christina. We'll have a, you have a great Christmas, and we'll have a talk with you again in the new year. Thank you, Julian. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you, and Merry Christmas to you and your listeners. Thank you. Bye bye. Peace and love and fun everywhere. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye. Christina Sikiage is there with the great, great little tips that keep coming through, aren't they? And it's uh, 28 minutes to two. Time for a couple of our small business tips from the Harvard Business Review. First one says, stop trying to hide your failures. Even though failure is praised in places like Silicon Valley, it's still considered taboo in many workplaces. But the truth is that we need to experience failure in order to learn and grow. So how do we leverage a setback to succeed next time? First, we have to speak openly and honestly about our failures so they are put into the proper context. Recognise that innovation requires failure. If you have 100% success rate, you're not going to do anything new. Instead of hiding your mistakes, own your narrative. In some ways, it's a reframing. It's not so much that you're creating something, such as a product or a service, that failed. It's that you're steadily improving a series of drafts. And remember, failure is ongoing. After all, uh, stretch goals are things outside your wheelhouse that may not work out. But if you're making new and different mistakes, that's progress. So looking on the positive side now, let's have a look at be strategic in how you handle success. People often prepare for failure, but they rarely prepare for what they will do when they succeed. Even when we consciously want to be successful, enjoying that success can be a challenge. Being successful can leave others envious and even hoping to see you fail. To avoid causing resentment, it's important to learn when and where and how to share the good news. When you discuss your wins, talk about other things that you're developing so it doesn't appear boastful. That doesn't mean you can't enjoy your victories, just don't flaunt them. Celebrate the value you bring, not winning per se. It's also important to keep looking for new challenges. No one wants to be bored, even at the top. When you've mastered something, ask yourself, how can you innovate around this? So a couple of interesting points there, probably what we've been talking about over the year. And thank you for being with me for the past half hour. In fact, thank you for being with me for the past year. I hope you enjoyed the program. In a moment, Jane Klein will be back with you with more of your easy listening favourites. 
and we'll be back next year with some more legal and news, legal and news and views that may affect your business. I'd love your company again next year for business, the law, and you. And we're back on the 29th of January. Until then, have an exciting and prosperous uh, Christmas period. And as Norman Vincent Peale once said, Christmas waves a magic wand over the world, and behold, everything is softer and more beautiful. <laughs>